My first guest was not interested in climbing the corporate ladder. In fact, he went from being a Wall Street lawyer to podcasting way back in 2006. So he was an early adopter, to say the least. Jordan Harbinger, he's been called the Larry King of podcasting, and he's interviewed a who's who of amazing celebrities and authors. I'll just list a few. Kobe Bryant, Mark Cuban, Malcolm Gladwell, Bill Nye the Science Guy, I love him. Dennis Rodman, Moby, Tony Hawk, the hilarious Bob Saget, Caesar Milan, Simon Sinek. I mean, the list goes on and on. You just need to look at his catalog to see all of the amazing people that he's interviewed. His show, The Jordan Harbinger Show, receives over 6 million downloads a month, and it's actually been voted one of the best podcasts on Apple. So needless to say, he's found success in this space, and I'm thrilled to share his journey on this inaugural episode of For the Love of Podcast. Here's some highlights to look forward to. Jordan will share what he means when he says podcasting is the great equalizer, why he cautions anyone thinking about starting a podcast as an additional revenue stream. He sort of laughs at that concept. Advice on what to avoid doing when promoting your show, what he would do if he had to start all over from scratch. He'll share the funny story of how he actually became the Larry King of podcasting, and he'll reveal a couple secret weapons on how he does research before he interviews his guests that gives him knowledge that virtually no one else would know. He'll also provide tips on how to approach high-profile guests, why he believes it's so critically important to be an advocate for your audience, and we'll take an inside look on what he's working on to hone his craft. He's somebody that's always trying to get better, even though he's at the top of his game. As you can see, this one is jam-packed full of insights, so let's jump into the conversation. Jordan Harbinger, welcome to For the Love of Podcast. Thanks for being on the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate that. I am so grateful that we have the opportunity to connect. We first met through LinkedIn probably about a month or so ago. I reached out to you. I had read an article that you put together and where you basically broke down in no uncertain terms why people should think twice before going the podcasting route. And what I love about the way in which you articulated your message. You didn't hold any punches. And I think all too often people are painting a rosy picture of how things are. And you didn't do that. I appreciate the fact that you kind of told a cautionary tale that like, if you're going to go in and be a podcaster, go in with your eyes wide open and have the right expectations. Let me ask you this, man. You've been podcasting since 2006. I know that you've had interesting ride and we're going to get into all of that. But if you were talking to somebody that's thinking about starting a podcast right now in 2020, what would you tell them? If I talked to somebody that was thinking about starting a podcast right now in 2020, oh, by the way, every microphone, a USB microphone on the internet is like sold out right now. So I assume we're talking to like thousands, tens of thousands of people starting podcasts. Because at first I thought they were buying them for their Zoom calls, but let's be realistic. You don't need a road podcaster or a, a USB mic for a, a Zoom call. It's a slow game, man. It's beyond slow. What I love about podcasting is it's it's like the great equalizer in a lot of ways. You see celebrities that start podcasts and they get this big initial boost and everyone's like, oh yeah, this is the next big thing. And then it just fails. You know, they pay or Spotify or whoever, some company pays a celebrity like $2 million to do a limited 12 episode series and it immediately gets canceled. Like no one cares about it because the initial buzz is, hey, this is bad. You know, this really sucks. So people who are just well-known, it's not always the recipe. There are a lot of YouTubers that start podcasts. They have like a million subs on YouTube and they're like, yeah, I'm getting 8,000 downloads per episode on my podcast. Wow. 8,000 is respectable by any metric, but if you have a million subscribers on YouTube, you're probably not super excited about getting $200 from a sponsor for your podcast for 8,000 people. Like that's a lot of people. It's a slow game because... Even if you're a celebrity, let's assume we're not talking to celebs, right? Like, even if you're a well-known personality, and even if you already have interview and show broadcasting skills, like maybe you come from a radio background, and you start a show, you still have to market that show, word of mouth has to travel, you have to be doing something unique. I know a lot of radio personalities that start shows, 
And they're like, man, it's just a limited audience. I can't get traction on this thing. What's going on? And you know, I'll give it a listen and I'll go, oh, you're doing your morning show, but you're doing it on the internet. And they're like, yeah, and it works so well in Detroit or wherever. That's because there's one choice or two choices or three choices or whatever of morning shows if you're driving in a commute in Detroit on terrestrial radio. Now I can choose from any morning show in English anywhere. Why would I choose you? Why? Why would I choose you? And if you can't answer that question right away, you're in trouble in podcast land. You have to have something that is unique and, you know, the whole like, I'm the best me I can be. That only works in self-help books, you know, like that doesn't work when you're trying to market a product. So you have to be very, very cognizant of the fact that you might do a show and it might never turn into a business. When I did my seven year anniversary episode, seven year anniversary episode, it was 2013 or so. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm finally starting to get a hang of this after seven years. And Robert Greene, the author, he was one of my guests that year, or for the seventh anniversary episode. He was the only guest, actually. And at the end, he goes, this is really good. You know, this is like one of the better interviews I've ever done. And I've done a lot of media. My head was, I was in the clouds. I felt so good about that. It was amazing. Nobody had ever complimented me like that before. It was really, really awesome to hear. And that combined with I'm starting to get the hang of this was an interesting dichotomy because here I'm talking to like one of my favorite authors of all time and he's telling me I did a great job, but I'm also like for the first time feeling kind of confident about what I was doing. So the finally feeling confident met external validation and it felt really good. That took seven years. I'm not saying everybody else is gonna be such a slow moving, slow, late bloomer in their show like me. But my 10th year anniversary, I said, I thought I was getting a hang of this, but now I'm getting, now I got it though. And now I'm in year 13, I believe. And I'm like, you know, I'm pretty good at this. I think I have, there's a future for me in interviewing and being on the show. And, you know, other people are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We kind of realize this. It is a slow game. You know, I am still doing whatever I can to market the show. I'm doing whatever I can to promote myself and going on other shows like yours to talk about the Jordan Harbinger show. I have lots of different skills I'm working on all of the time, whether it's my voice, whether it's the cadence with which I speak, getting rid of my regional Michigan freaking accent that drives me crazy and other people notice sometimes. You know, I'm working on all of those things. And now I'm doing it on camera. So I'm like, oh crap, uh, all these things I was doing before to get good on the radio. Now I have to sit up straight to boot. Oh, why didn't I do more with my hair today? Hey, have I been wearing the same shirt seven <laughs> weeks in a row on camera? Yeah, I have. Right. And I'm probably shouldn't. Why stop now? And even yesterday, my wife was like, you know, the angle with the webcam being up like that, we should do like a side angle DSLR and there should be lighting over here. And then you got to get that powder that stops you from being shiny. That sounds like basics, but bear in mind, I'd already spent 13 years working on getting my voice and vocal presence and resonance and being able to prep an interview and blah, 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 blah. Now I have to do it while people are looking at me too, like FML, man, you know? So it's a never ending pursuit, but it is also a very worthwhile endeavor only if you love it. I tell people if they're like, yeah, I just want to add another, I want to add another revenue stream. I can't even say it without laughing. Uh, I want to add another revenue stream to my business. So I'm going to do a podcast. I'm just like, you are delusional. If you think that this is going to add another revenue, you know who can add another revenue stream by starting a podcast? Pitbull, Tony <laughs> Robbins, Will Ferrell can add another revenue stream. You, Joe from Montana, working at a car dealership, you are a decade and a half away from adding another revenue stream to your business using a podcast. Like, do it. I'm not trying to discourage you, but if you think you're going to go to stay at the Four Seasons in Greece or something a year into your show, you are literally just wildly delusional. delusional. There's no getting around it. <laughs> Well, okay, so 13 years, you're finally now getting in the swing of things. I, I'm being somewhat facetious, but yeah, yeah. it did take a long time and to your own admission. Let's say you had to start over, which you already did, right? About two and a half years ago, you started over, you, you left the Art of Charm and you started your own show, The Jordan Harbinger Show, which has taken off even more so than your previous show. You have 6 million plus downloads a month, which is just insane. But to your admission, one of the biggest reasons you were able to reboot is your network, which we'll get into in a minute. Before we talk network, let's talk about if you didn't leverage your network, if you didn't have your network, but you had your knowledge and you had your skills, knowing what you know now, what would you do if you had to start all over yet again? 
but not leveraging your existing network because that is a huge help. My network has saved my butt in the past many times. That's why I recommend people get and build network. I mean, my free course is all about that. I'll plug that sucker later on if you're cool with it. Oh, um, well, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's great. I took, <laughs> I took the whole course. I, I, I reviewed it. Yeah. So if you're great. wondering who wrote that long review, that was me. Recently. That's great. No, I appreciate that. So your network is the insurance policy that you can't purchase, right? If you can't use your network, this is tough, man, because somebody the other day asked me like, oh, what would you what amount of money would you have needed to restart? And I'm like, oh, five to $10,000 with that, with a network that I had would need to replace equipment. Not even probably would need that much, but I would need some basic amount of money to live. But other than that, I, I didn't need, need much. Without a network, I don't know, $5 million, $7 million to get where I'm at now. And it would still take a long time because all the word of mouth, all of the brand equity, I would have had to spend money on advertising and cram it down people's throats. What happened when I had to start my business over a few years ago, because I split off from my old partners and there's like an intellectual property dispute that is still ongoing. I just started over because it was faster and better. It was like my audience left the old show that I was doing and jumped over to the Jordan Harbinger show within a few months. And certainly within like the first year, I had pretty much, we had built bigger than the old show. But if people were just hearing about me for the first time, I would have had to spend at least seven figures, probably multiple seven figures on ads to get people to hear the show over and over and over. And I still have my skills though, right? Like if I didn't have my skills, I don't even know. I mean, then, then you're just starting from zero, right? So I would have needed a lot of money. I mean, if I had to start over again and I didn't have my network, I mean, I would either need to take a massive loan or I would have to radically adjust my lifestyle to fit the amount of income that I could generate from the show, for sure. Well, one of the things that you pride yourself on, and for good reason, is being the advocate for your listener and providing real value. What I hear over and over again, and you've talked about this, is these rambling, it's just a conversation. It's Bob talking to Bill. And that's great. Like I can go listen to somebody on a subway and listen to them talk about whatever. But your show provides tactical, practical tips that somebody can actually apply in real life. You even offer worksheets to accompany each episode that you put out. Has it always been that way? And why did you choose to approach your show that way? That's a really interesting question. I think the reason I started doing my show just to be more tactical was because originally 14, 13, whatever years ago, the show was mostly about like dating and body language and relationships. So it was tactical in nature, like, oh, okay, you want to have like an upright, open, positive, confident body language. You want to come in with high energy. You want to come into the group with that. Like it was like these sort of techniques. And then I stopped being interested in that as I got older, naturally, and I've met my wife, got married, et cetera. And then also I outgrew it. You know, when you're in your 20s, you're like, yeah, pick up girls at the bar. And then when you're in your 30s, you're like, no, that's what, you know, I'm not doing that anymore. And also, what was I thinking? That was like kind of like two standard deviations away from a little bit of some misogyny now that I think about it. And like, how did that happen? I'm not that guy. So as I moved away from that, I didn't throw the baby out with the bathwater because I was like, my audience really loves the fact that I'm able to give them tactics that they can apply because reviews of my show over years and years and years would say things like, this is the only show that has like concrete things you can do. Because a lot of podcasters and internet marketers, I should say in general, but a lot of internet marketers and podcasters, the Venn diagram of those two people, you know, overlaps a little. Mm -hmm. Those people love to be like, three techniques that will guarantee do X, Y, Z. And then they talk for an hour in a sales video, but you don't ever learn the techniques and everyone hates those people and wants to like reach through their computer and punch those people in the face. I'm part of that group where I'm like, if if someone tries to trick me with clickbait headline, I will have a moment of just absolute irrational rage at like being duped like that. And no one likes doing that. So I decided I'm not doing that to my audience. I'm not going to title a show like the one thing you can do. And then it's either a bullcrap cliche or it's like some non thing or it's like buy my course for $69.97 to find the one thing. It's like tell people what they're going to get. And that's what I do in the beginning of every episode of the Jordan Harbinger show, which you've heard. I'll say like today on this episode with Mark Cuban, we talk about this, 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 and this. And if you're like, I don't want to hear that from Mark Cuban, then turn the show off and go to a different episode. And since I have different conversations with a lot of people, 
you know, I had Kobe Bryant on last year and mm-hmm. I think September, October. And I said in the beginning, there's no basketball talk in this show because I don't want people to be like, oh, I came here for Kobe Bryant to talk about basketball and Shaquille O'Neal. And all he talked about was parenting, creativity, achievement, and da 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 da. Standards sucks. for his company. Like- Standards for his company. Yeah, exactly. So, like, I don't want to deceive anyone. My theory, now that I'm articulating this, my theory is if you have to deceive somebody into listening to your stuff, your stuff sucks, right? Like if I have to trick you into reading my thing, my thing sucks. I love your story when I go back to your early days when you were a kid you know, it was the AOL days and you were like, you're working for the FBI essentially, right? Point being is you've always had this almost this vigilante mission to prevent people from falling for scams and things that'll dupe them. You're like, you don't hold any punches when it comes to your feelings about MLMs and other things that people get involved in because they're vulnerable prey for the predators that are out there. And it's interesting to see the parallel as you describe this that runs between your work and wanting to avoid ever coming even close to being that you're interviewing spies. You had Frank Abagnale. It was the first guest on your show, the Jordan Harbinger show. And you seem to have a fascination with people who can point a spotlight on wrongdoing. What are the reasons that developed and that's become part of your show? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I don't know why I developed that sense of justice. Like, maybe it's because I used to be a lawyer and like something, something strong sense of justice. You know, that is possible. I'm more inclined to think that I always had a strong sense of justice but I don't exactly know why. You know, mm. I of course I was young and I used to think spies were cool and I still do. And I do try to have a lot of esoteric or rare guests on the show, you know, whether it's Frank Abagnale from Catch Me If You Can or some kind of other, you know, art forger or something like that on the Jordan Harbinger show. I try to stay esoteric because that's like a competitive advantage, finding guests where people are like, well, how did you even find out about the this guy? So that to me is always interesting. I always want to know stories and things like that. But you know what it is? Here's what I think it is. And I don't know when this started or what, but I look at the internet now. I always, th- I think I had this sense of justice before then, but we'll see. I look at the internet now and I go, some of the wealthiest people I know that use the internet to make their money, they're unscrupulous a- as hell. And they're like, join this multi-level marketing bullshit, pay for my business mastermind bullshit thing where I charge you 40 grand and you'd listen to like, crappy two-bit TED Talks by other internet marketers that are just pitching you their shit too. So that makes me angry because I work super hard to make a really good product that's better than what everybody else is doing. And by product, I mean the Jordan Harbinger show. I don't even sell anything. But I see people, and it takes me, it's taken me 14 plus years to develop trust and rapport with my audience. And it's taken me countless hours of preparation. And then I see some schmucky schmuck show up, buy a USB mic, con people, usually kids that are 18, 20, into giving them hundred bucks, a thousand bucks, whatever it is, or more, selling them just garbage, abusing them, abusing their trust, abusing them financially by taking their money, not delivering, and then being like, next, you know, just so they can have a Lamborghini. And it just makes me want it. Like, I realize those people are damaged, so I want to be like kind, but also fuck them. Fuck those guys. I'm with you, man. Yeah, like those guys, they have made a conscious choice where they went, ooh, yeah, look at this, man, Jordan, or fill fill in somebody who's done, don't even put me in this, fill out somebody who's got, like, worked really hard to get where they are, like, let's talk about, like, Larry King and talk, or, like, Charlie Rose or Jimmy Fallon or, like, some other star or actor or some business owner. You take a business owner that's worked for decades to generate rapport and trust, and these guys are like, I don't care about any of that crap. I just want money. I don't care about Jordan. I don't care about Scott. I don't care about Mark. I don't care about any of these kids. I just want their money. And then I can take their money and I can buy expensive, useless crap with it. And I'm leaving them worse than I found them, but I don't care because I feel good about it. And I'm like, are you a sociopath? What is wrong with you? So for me, I realize those people, I can't change them because they don't care. But what I can do is educate people and I can say, this is what a scam looks like. This is the type of person that falls for a scam. 
This is the type of thing you can do if you feel like you're getting scammed. These are the things you look for to see, you know, I, I can really sort of dismantle that. And these guys' worst enemy is an educated consumer. I get a lot of letters to the Jordan Harbinger show, especially for Feedback Friday, which is where I answer listener questions. And somebody will say something like, yeah, I got ripped off by this, da, da, da. And I'll be like, okay, so what we need to do is address why you're the type of person that falls for a scam, et cetera, et cetera. But here's what you can do. Call your credit card company, dispute the charge, tell them this was fraudulent and this and that and the other thing. Make an FTC complaint, make a local Better Business Bureau complaint, go on Trustpilot, go on Yelp, complain about this, complain about that. And they're like, oh, okay, this is the worst nightmare for a scammer. And if you get enough negative reviews of somebody online that you can trend on the front page of Google, this is their kryptonite. Because yes, they know they get negative reviews. They will stifle it as much as they can. But if you're on the front page for the double-digit percentage of people that are going to type in like, Dan Johnson, scam, and you show up and it's like, this guy's a scammer. Here's 380 people reporting them. Don't fall for this. Here's what they tell you you're going to get. And here's what actually happens. They lose money because of that. So that's where my sense of justice, I think, arises because I do a ton of work and I work really hard to do things the right way. In the 80s, you, your dad could be like, don't pay attention to what other people do. You just do the right thing always. But now people who cheat the system are not only cheating the people that they steal from, the consumers, they're also kind of stealing from me because I can tell you there's a lot of people online that I hear from, and I don't blame these people for this at all, but I was looking at Reddit the other day and someone was like, Jordan Harbinger, ah, he's just another one of those scammy assholes online. And I was at first I was like, how dare you? But then I realized, of course you would think that. Why wouldn't you when 98 out of 100 people or the last 50 people that you've dealt with, 40 of them tried to sell you foreign currency exchange Bitcoin scams. Of course you think that anybody who offers anything online is a piece of human garbage. I would agree with you. Right. You know, <laughs> if I didn't know me, myself personally so well. So yeah, I hate getting caught up in that. But that's I feel like that gets stolen because no other industry really, other than like being a used car salesman, is there a presumption that you are a scammy piece of shit? But now it's there is, and it's because of these guys. It's like the law of association, right? If there's yeah. enough other people doing it, you're going to get put in that big bucket. Yeah. And your upbringing, I'm sure, had something to do with it. I know you grew up in, in Michigan and you had your dad was in the automotive business as an engineer. Your mom was a school teacher. I'm sure that they gave you a foundation to build upon and, and they gave you the structure to know the difference between right and wrong. And therefore, mm -hmm. you have this belief. And yeah, I know you obviously became a lawyer on Wall Street and you're, you were able to take your belief in justice and take that into your work now as a podcaster. One of the things that I am truly admire about the way you approach your work is the amount of research and preparation you do going into an interview. You don't half-ass it. You already just mentioned Larry King, Charlie Rose, which I know you used to be the Charlie Rose of podcasting, which has morphed into the Larry yeah. King of podcasting. Did I, did I tell you that story? Did you hear that story when you were doing the research? I did, yeah. But go ahead, yeah. tell the story, man. Yeah, so my bio used to say the Charlie Rose of podcasting because I think like Inc. Magazine or it was Inc. Magazine or Entrepreneur or like one of those like it was one of those, wrote that in an article. And it was great because I love Charlie Rose and he's a great interviewer. And I really do feel like the Charlie Rose of podcasting. And then like one day at four o'clock in the morning, I get a call from a phone number in France. And it's like this freelance writer that we had hired. And he goes, you might want to change your bio right now. I'm going to go into the website and delete this line. And then you just wake up and tell me what you want me to do. I can always undo it. I'm just going to err on the side of caution here. I was like, why? That Google Charlie Rose. And it's like, he's got this scandal where he was harassing somebody. I mean, I'm, I'm smiling because it affected me in this weird way, not because of what happened. Obviously, if he did what he did, I don't know how that even shaped out. I didn't track it. He had like abused this intern and made her unclog a toilet quote unquote, brimming with feces and all this other horrible stuff. And I was like, Ugh, this is not a good guy. So then... I changed it in my bio, but then on Wikipedia, it kept showing up over and over. And it was like, he's the Charlie Rose of podcasting. And I was like, okay, how do I make this go away? So I finally ended up calling, tracking down and calling the journalist at I think Inc. Magazine that wrote this article where I was named as the Charlie Rose of podcasting. And I go, hey, this is super unorthodox. Can you change something in the piece? And they were like, 
Normally, we would never do this, but the intention was not to label you that version of Charlie Rose, and you're never going to live this down, and it's in your Wikipedia, so I'm going to change it. So they changed it after getting like editorial, ethical, whatever, clear and sun, however you do that, because it just, it's a good lesson that you should be very careful to brand with people sparingly, and when you do, you better make damn sure that those are the kind of people that you want to be associated with because it's impossible. Who would have thought the guy who did a a talk interview show on PBS was like just a hound dog? You know, maybe people that knew him knew better, but I sure didn't. From outside, he just looked like a nerd who had a lot of paper on his desk and (laughs) had intelligent conversations. Well, I know he's one of the best, right? So I can understand why that at first would be a great person to have any association to. But when obviously that happened, you you want to avoid that. And so now it's the Larry King of podcasting. But you've talked about Wikipedia, which you had mentioned something. I think it maybe was in your Google talk, but I've watched so much of your stuff. I've a little bit lost track. But Wikipedia, one of the things about it is this talk section within Wikipedia where people Mm -hmm. sort of argue back and forth about what should be on there. And the reason I bring this up is, you know, I think standard People should read the book of the guests. They should watch any interviews they've or listen to any interviews they've been on. They should read their articles. That's like cost to get in the door. But you're not going to get everything from there. So one of the things that you do, which I really love, is you pick things that maybe other people haven't talked about. And I, I just think there's so much value in, especially with famous guests that have been interviewed hundreds of times, how can you unearth something new and different? Curious what other ideas, tips, or suggestions you have to do that. Yeah, so you mentioned the talk section of Wikipedia. That's one of my, like, sort of go-to secret weapons, if you will. The talk section is great. I mean, it, sometimes it's like there's nothing in there, and other times there's, like, books and books and books of controversial stuff that has no proof, and you can be the person who goes in there and asks this famous person, like, do you own ferrets? And they're like, yeah, how did you know? And I'm like, oh, I do a lot of research. Meanwhile, some like stalker on Wikipedia is like, I see her with ferrets. I also look at the Amazon reviews, most helpful or most constructive. I can't remember what it's called in Amazon, but basically you can find like the most constructive, most helpful reviews of something. And so if it's an author, I usually will look for the most constructive or most helpful, it's got to be most helpful, negative review. Because negative reviews on Amazon are like, one star, arrived damaged, can't even get a refund, hate this place. You don't want those. You want the one where it's like, this was a great look at neuroscience until I read it. I'm a PhD in neuroscience from Carnegie Mellon. This author gets these 10 things wrong. I'm going to outline each one because I'm like a, a type A personality that spends way too long writing Amazon reviews. That's gold. Because I could read the whole book and go, seems legit. But then I look at the review from this obvious expert in the field and I go, oh, now I have a critical counterpoint from somebody who's not going to be in the room with me. So I basically have PhD level knowledge that I can call upon in this very narrow area, very narrow concern. Often I'll bring that up. And the guest will go, oh, I'm glad you asked that because I've been you know, accused of this before. But the, where the per- people get this wrong that think that is this, this, and this, and this. They don't go, Jordan, do you have a PhD in neuroscience? But I do get it at the end. They'll be like, how did you even know that such and such synapse didn't do this and this and this? And I'm like, Amazon. Amazon reviews, man. And they're blown away because they didn't even necessarily think about that. Like the last time they had to pay attention to that when they were defending their dissertation and or if they ever read their Amazon reviews. What a golden nugget, man. I love that. I don't think I've heard that one before. I'm super excited to employ that technique. That's fantastic because to your point, you're going to get insights that you maybe wouldn't have got. You wouldn't necessarily get the counterpoint. Could you or have you let that vet somebody out of your interview schedule. Meaning you find somebody like there's so much damaging rebuttal to their work that you just decide they're not the person you want to interview. I wonder if you've ever done that because I know vetting your your guests is really important. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I've definitely had people where I'm like, oh, that person might be interesting. I'm going to go after this person. I'm going to go after that person. And then I'll talk to somebody and they're like, do not do that. This person's not good news. This person's not going to look good. This person's not going to look good for you in the future. I've made, I've gone over the line a few times, I think. I've also, yeah, I've said no to a handful of folks. There's other people where I'm like constantly tossing around whether I should associate, but I always err on the side of not doing it. There's a guy, 
I don't want to name him. It's a little unfair. There's been a couple occasions where somebody will want to even give me promo on their thing, but they're like a convicted con man instead of, and I believe in second chances. I do work with people behind bars and in prisons and things like that, but they're, they're kind of like romanticizing what they did. They're not really expressing any remorse. They're just kind of like, yeah, I'm out now. I'm ne- next time I'm going to be even more sly. And I'm like, okay, so you're just still a criminal. You're just not going to get caught this time. Good luck with that. So I don't want to have those people on and I don't even want to profile them. Then you're just an instrument of their scam. If I'm able to bring somebody on and go, you did this, it was wrong. Let's talk about it. And they're like, it was wrong. Let me talk about it. But if they're kind of like, oh, whatever, I'm going to smooth this over. There are a few exceptions. Like I've got a a acquaintance. I almost said friend. I guess we're friends. He was in the mafia for years and he was an enforcer for the Gotti family. And I would have him on and we would talk about a lot of criminal activity because you don't expect a mafioso to be like, I feel really bad about this. When we have dinner and stuff like that, he will talk like that. So we will do that. But it's not glorifying the crime. Like the moral of the story is, hey, I should have just done something else because it robbed me of precious life in freedom and with my kids and stuff like that. You have to be really careful of that. But there are other guests that do not have any interest at all and showing you a redeeming side of things, they just want to make money. So they're never going to say, yeah, I did a financial scam and it was stupid. What they're going to do is go, yeah, I did a financial scam. And that's what's giving me the inside knowledge to sell you my course for $99.97 on how to invest. And it's like, this is just another scam. Anybody who buys this as a result of my show is going to get ripped off. And then they're going to go, yeah, I heard this asshole on the Jordan Harbinger show. And that's why I got ripped off. Right. And I don't want that. And that's when the association comes in. What you're doing is effectively an infomercial and that's not your style, right? And so right. you got somebody like Frank Abagnale who comes on and he talks about, hey, I was immature. I probably wouldn't have done this if I were 25. But from the time, you know, I was when I was 19, I, I didn't know any better, right? And what a fascinating interview, by the way. I love it. He's it, great. I mean, and, and, to, and to add to your some color to that, this is the, the guy from Catch Me If You Can who Leonardo DiCaprio played in the movies, the real guy. He spent five years doing fraud or something like that. And then he spent some time behind bars and then he spent like 25 years helping the FBI catch scammers. So like he's clearly on (laughs) the side of, and I think he was like 20 when he got caught or something like that too, you know, like or 21 and now he's like 70. So exactly. We can forgive. So somebody has redeemed themselves at that point. He's crossed that line of redemption for sure. So, okay, let's talk a little bit about networking. And again, I took your course I have to say, man, like it is just jam packed with goodness and not infomercial. Hey, go buy it because guess what? You're not charging for it. You say on your show, it's not put your credit card free. It's free, free. Yeah. And, and, and so what's beautiful about the course is it not only helps people retie to acquaintances and what you call dormant ties, but it also gives some really good guidance on how to reach out to more busy people that maybe even are high profile people. And so I wondered if you could share a little bit about that with the podcasting slant. If a podcaster is listening to this who wants to develop a relationship or to at least start a conversation with somebody that's a bit more high profile, what's your suggestion? First of all, it's, it's always great to reach out to folks, of course, cold. But I will say that the best thing you can do, well, let me start over here because you do have to reach out to people cold and you have to talk about what's in it for them. So I don't want to give you cliche advice. Like I, I will say I do get a lot of pitches from people that are like, I would love to have you on my podcast because I have so many questions for you. And that sounds flattering on its face, but for somebody who gets pitched all the time, it's not great. So you have questions for somebody who's super famous. So you have questions for somebody who's super accomplished. I want to take myself out of the equation here. You have questions for a professional basketball player, professional baseball player. So what's in it for them? And there's a lot of people thinking that just giving people a chance to promote their stuff is good enough. That only works at a certain scale. You really have to be careful about that because otherwise you risk sounding like the person who goes, hey, can you draw me or make me this expensive, hard to create thing and I'll give you exposure? Like every photographer knows what I'm talking about. When someone says, I'll give you, I'll tag you on my Instagram. And it's like, why would I need that? Why would I need that? I have 28,000 followers. Great. How many of them are willing to book me for their wedding? Zero? Great. So you have to be careful about that kind of pitch. The obvious way to get 
great guests is to have great guests already and then have a big enough platform that makes it worth it to come on there because that the publicist is usually making the decision. In lieu of that, that knocking on the front door approach, the best thing you can do is consume a lot of someone's work, like a lot, a lot. You know, if you have a favorite author and you've read all their books over and over and over, write down all of your really detailed, nuanced questions, and then you can send them to that person through LinkedIn is a great way to, to reach a lot of folks. If they're independently employed, it might be a little harder through LinkedIn. All corporate people seem to use LinkedIn, but you can reach them through their agent. You can reach them through a speaking agent. You can reach them through friends. You can guess their email. That's a, a thing that I've done before. And then you send those concise and short questions in there and you say, look, ideally, I'd love to be able to talk with you on the phone or via my podcast or on Zoom or whatever your, me- your medium is and get these answered uh, and that, that would help out a lot of other fans. It's only impressive if you really dig something deep. Like if I'm talking to JK Rowling and I'm like, I have all these very specific questions, you better have some really nuanced Harry Potter questions. You can't be like me and go, uh, yeah, I wondered like why all the people in the first book were so young and like, where did this happen? Like it has to be super detailed, nuanced, only she can answer them. The feeling you want is you want them to come away from the interview going, or the interview, the the email going, this person has done a ridiculous amount of homework, but you also have to phrase it in a way that's not creepy. Like, hey, how are your pets so-and-so and such-and-such doing? I hope they're doing great. Then it's like, why do you know my cat's names? That's a little bit much. How's yeah. Momo doing, by the yeah, way? Yeah, Momo's great. So Momo's <laughs> on the show, so it's fair, right? It's fair game. Yeah, like, yeah, Momo's yeah, yeah. great. Uh, my hairless cat. But if somebody's like a private person or their cat's names, like sure. you find out from like a weird sort of connection that they, you don't want them to feel violated. You want to ask them questions that only they can answer. Ideally, you should make it not about them, but about their work. Unless somehow those two are intertwined. People might ask me questions. My work and the Jordan Harbinger show are obviously one in the same, or my life and the Jordan Harbinger show are basically one in the same. If you've got an author or a corporate person, you got to be careful like about how much you dig because you don't want them to feel violated. So there is a bit of an art to that. And what I try to do is I try to figure out Here's something I actually have done with great success. I try to figure out where they go to present things and I try to meet them at those events, but I don't go and wait in line after their talk and like try to go up and meet them as a speaker. I will either try to get a speaking slot or a volunteer MC slot or whatever it is at that event. And if your talents aren't in running an event, fine. I will often buy a ticket or in the past I'd buy a ticket to an event where that person was speaking. And then I would reach out to them beforehand and I'd say, hey, I noticed that you really like uh, jogging or running or biking or whatever it is that maybe we had in common. I don't run anymore, but like maybe we had that in common. I'm gonna, uh, one time I, I did it with a squash court. I'm gonna get a squash court at this and this place near the hotel on Friday. I don't have a squash partner. Do you wanna play squash? And this scientist was like, yeah, why not? I looked you up. You don't look like a crazy person. So yeah, I'd love to get a game in before my flight uh, after my talk. So I went and saw the talk, didn't wait in line to meet up with them. Next morning, met up, played squash for an hour. So while everybody else waited for an hour to get 30 seconds with him, I waited zero seconds to get an hour and a half with him. And now we're in touch regularly, right? Right. And that's the way that you want to do this. Knocking on the front door is what everyone is doing. And you don't stand out that way at all. For some guests, you don't need to. But for some people that are in demand, you cannot simply email, you know, support at therock.com. Hey, will you come on my podcast? Like, that's not going to happen. You need a better strategy. Good luck. Right. Yeah. The generic path won't work. And even the specific path won't work if it's somebody that's big enough where everybody knows everything about them. You mentioned on, again, I forget exactly where, but you know, sometimes you go to these events and you have sort of a dossier of who's going to be at the event, you know, going in things about each person. And so you can carefully establish rapport, build a conversation with them. And your, your network, as your network grows, guess what? Now you're starting to get introductions from other people to have them be guests. But it does start with, you can't just come in and be like the normal, boring solicitation email that has no substance to it. You know, I sent you a note. I tried to be as specific as possible. It's so funny though, when I went through your course, I was like, well, I, I kind of did what you're mm-hmm. advising people do. And, in, and also in your course, you talk about going through 
and looking at old text messages. You can ask my friends. That's something that I've historically done, which is your network that exists also has gold in there. And if you are top of mind by going back and looking at your old text message and start to just reestablish connections with these people, guess what? That may open doors, more opportunities, more opportunities for guests. I want to just make sure that we talk about one more topic, which is this topic of your ability to be the host that will craft the story. And so when I say that, what I mean is like anybody could ask a question and just wait for the person to answer and give them whatever they're going to give them. But you've talked about how you have to craft and mold and shape the story. And I just think that's such a fundamental principle that podcasters should follow. wonder if you could elaborate and kind of talk about how you do that. Can you sort of, can you clarify a little bit of what you mean by, or what you think I meant maybe is a better question by yeah. craft the story? Well, okay. So the, an example would be you're asking questions, waiting for the response and somebody could just riff for like 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever it may be. You're there for a reason as the host. Mm -hmm. What is the reason the host is there? How do you do that? How do you handle people that maybe are talking for a long time and you need to bring them back on track? Or maybe you have a through line that you want to capture or, or an insight that you want to capture from your guests that you know they know. This is a perfect example here. How do you unearth that from the guest? Yeah, it's tricky. So I often will either say there's a great story that you told about getting arrested in Moldova. Would you tell us that? And they'll be like, okay. And then I'll be like, wait, I got to lead into this in a natural way because I want to cut out that. Or, you know, I might just say like, what's this about you getting arrested in Moldova? Boom. They'll tell the story like on cue and then I'll cut it around it to make it seem a little bit more, le less clunky, more natural. But if I know that somebody has a good insight, I would simply try to draw out that insight by either asking directly and then cutting it out. Like, tell me your three top tips that you always give. Uh, those are great. I heard it on another show. Top tips for uh, keeping in touch with dormant network ties. There was one about texting. Can you start there? And I'll cut around it. The other thing I might do is go, you know, you're really good at networking. You're really good at reaching out to people. You have systems for this, from what I understand. Would you share those with us? So you have to choose your, your level of directness. Like if somebody's just not getting it, like me a few minutes ago, you might have to be like, what was that thing that you said in this show when it was good and then it was funny and you did that joke? Can you do that now? Maybe a, a little more tactful than that sometimes, but not always. Other times I ask less directly and I get the right thing. And then sometimes I just can't do it. There was a guest that was on a comedy show and she was so good and so open and so interesting. And she was a little bit raunchy, which was kind of funny because she's like a buttoned up author. And I kind of wanted a little bit of that on the Jordan Harbinger show, but it just didn't quite make sense. And I asked her some of the same lead in questions and she would be like, well, this, that, and the other thing. And I was like, she's not going to want to go down that path. So you can't really recreate all of the moments you want on every bit of tape that you have. And other times, yeah, I ask indirectly over and over and over and over again, and then eventually I'll hit it. Uh, or I have to stop because it's just weird. She'll be like, why is this the third time you're harping on about how my prison experience? And I'm like, tell the damn story about when you did the thing, you know? And then either I go directly or I, I said like, what I was looking for also was like, whether, you know, th there was a story about a fight. I, I don't really remember it because what you don't want to do is go, no, there was this exact story that I heard an hour before I sat down with you because I was listening to it on the way here. You want to say, I vaguely, you know, as I was doing my research, one of my friends who knows a lot of your, your work really well had mentioned, I definitely need to ask you about the bar fight in Morocco. And then they'll be like, oh my God, the bar fight in Morocco. Then I have a lead in. That's my friend told me you got in a bar fight in Morocco. Not tell that damn story that I'm obviously trying to hint at you that I heard in a YouTube video. You know, you have to make it your own a little bit because you don't want to just be creating a collage of other people's work during an interview. It has to be an organic conversation. But I see a lot of podcasters making serious mistakes with organic conversation because they'll have somebody in who, like I, I was talking to Amanda Knox this morning. Do you know who she is? She was like arrested for this crime in Italy and yep. she didn't do it. It was a murder. It was a huge internationally famous case. She was on a comedy show and the guy was like talking about chickens and then he was talking about this, that, and the other thing in the Renaissance Fair and they had all this banter and small talk beforehand, which must have been nice but you cut that out of the damn show. The show was like two and a half hours long. And I'm just thinking, 
ridiculous. You're wasting everyone's time. You're not being an advocate for your audience if you're willing to blow their time like that so cheaply. But what that did do was it got her in this really loosened up mode where for the next hour of actual content, she was really, 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 really open. And so I was trying to create some of those moments with Amanda Knox this morning, and some of them fit and some of them didn't. But it really does depend on how much time you have. It depends on your skill in getting the good content out. And a lot of it depends on the guest. There are times where I have a guest that is just in a crap mood, and I'm like, where's the jovial cool guy that I just heard on three other shows? Like, what happened? You didn't have your coffee this morning? And you can't do anything about that. You can't go, no, like, be funny, and then tell the ice cream story, and then tell me something. You can get people in a better mood throughout the show, but it takes long enough where maybe they tell the ice cream story at the end. That's all you got. You can't always blame yourself. On your last Feedback Friday, the, the last question somebody asked, they basically gave you huge props. They're like, you're at the top of your game, and what's next for you? And you kind of thought that was funny. Last question for you, Jordan, is, you, what are you working on? Because you you said you know more now about what you're doing wrong than ever. What is it that you are focused on to improve your game? I work on my voice with a voice coach almost every morning. I am consistently working on ways that I can prep better. I'm always working on trying to come up with a better user experience. Like As you know, Every episode of the Jordan Harbinger show has worksheets for the guests, or sorry, for the for the listener to go and learn from the guest. I've got my free course, Six Minute Networking, the one we talked about before. And that I'm working on other courses that aren't free, but are like really complete and awesome. I have a call about one right after this, in fact. And, you know, I work on getting bigger and better, not even bigger. I work on getting better and more interesting guests. Another thing I want to work on is I'm trying to find a journalist who's really good at storytelling to help me with the arc of a conversation. Because a lot of times, these NPR shows, I was always like, wow, they do a really good job telling these stories. Then you talk to the teams that make them, and they're like, yeah, it took us uh, four days to make that and cut all that tape together. And me naively sitting there going, wait, so he didn't just sit down with that guy and then just have that conversation and then add those interludes later? And they're like, no, this is like a week and a half of work. And then we go back and get more tape and then we get other tape and then we get other tape from this person and then we cut all this together and then we move that over there and this. So I want to find a journalist who's done shows like that that can teach me about story arc, but also within the, the confines of what I do on my show. And the problem is that's extremely difficult to find because what do I do? Do I call Charlie Rose, who has really interesting one-on-one conversations? Do I give Larry King a buzz? And I've done that actually with Larry King and he, he's been really generous. I call Guy Raz and I'm like, hey, can I learn about this, this, and this? And I only have a limited amount of time, Guy Raz from NPR. Or I'll get another NPR journalist and I was going to hire one as a coach finally. And she was like, yeah, it's $8,000 and I'll give you like two hours of my time. And I was like, you work for NPR. I'm not paying you. 20% of your annual salary, $18,000 or whatever it was, <laughs> to spend two hours with me. Are you insane? Like, this isn't a keynote speech. I'm going to freaking talk to you on a Zoom call. Like, give me a break. And, uh, you know, it's it sort of, so I'm still looking for that. But I'm always looking to improve some element of the show. Like, I break it all down into skills. Is it on-camera presence? Is it body language? Is it the way that I talk? The energy with which I talk? The cadence with which I talk? You know, I have coaches for all these different things. And I'm always trying to figure out how to make that just 1% better because where I'm at right now, 1% better every couple months is awesome. You know, over the next 10, 20 years, that's going to add up pretty quick. Yeah. Keep raising the bar, man. I am a massive fan. I thank Thank you so much. If you don't know who Jordan Harbinger is, go listen to his podcast, go to his website, jordanharbinger.com. You could check out his courses, jordanharbinger.com forward slash courses. The six-minute networking course is flat out amazing. And you will get so much value out of that course alone. And I'm certain the next ones will be as good, if not even better. Where else can they find you, Jordan? Obviously, you you got your Instagram, your Twitter. Yeah, I'm at Jordan Harbinger on Twitter and Instagram, jordanharbinger.com. The Jordan Harbinger Show. I would love it if people listen to the podcast since you listen to podcasts. I'm on YouTube, but I put like 5% of my episodes on YouTube because... I just for a long time, I'm like, nobody wants to see two dudes talking into a webcam, you know, a while after that. And even now I'm like committing to YouTube, you get sucked down this rabbit hole and you've got to like make your titles different. Then you start to become an internet marketer instead of a content creator. If you're not careful, I've seen it happen a lot. They go from interviewing neuroscientists and now it's like, here's an out of work actress that's still kind of hot on the show. 
I hate to be crude about it, but they're doing that because it, like the search volume in their YouTube keyword search engine ranked her above like Maria Konnikova's new book. And it's like, no, the choice is obvious. Choose Maria. She's amazing. Now nah, we're going to choose a person who gets 200 queries a week because we need more subs. It's dangerous. Anyway, I, that's a whole show. I don't even want to know why I brought that up. It's a different animal completely, but I'm with you, brother. So hey, again, thank you so much for being the first guest on For the Love of Podcast. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Good, good on you. This is fun. Stop. Don't leave yet. If you made it this far, please listen for just one more minute because I have something to tell you. First, thank you for listening to this very first episode of For the Love of Podcast. I can't tell you how much it means that you took the time to listen, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. So what do I want to tell you? I want to let you know that I'm here to serve you. If you have suggestions, ideas, possible guests, show topics, anything you'd like me to cover on future episodes, please let me know by sending feedback to for the love of podcast forward slash feedback. I want this to be a two-way street, not just me talking. I want to know what you want from this show. Ultimately, you will help decide what this show is and how it best serves you to make better podcasts. If you like this show, let me be blunt. The best payment you can give is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platforms. This is so important and it will help so much, especially during these early days as the show gets started. One more ask, please consider sharing this show with your friends on social media to help spread the word. So what's the next episode all about? I'm going to share an introduction to this podcast and share why I'm doing it and what to expect going forward. It'll be short, but hopefully it'll paint a picture of what I've been working on. All right, that's it. Until next time, please remember everything we do, we do it for the love of podcast.